Hello and welcome from Mount Pleasant Baptist Church. This podcast you're about to hear was recorded at our Kublup campus. So sit back, relax, and enjoy what God has to say to you. We are finishing our series on Celebrate this uh, week. And all through this series, what we've been doing each week is looking at one of the feasts in the Old Testament that God gave the Israelites to uh, keep them as his people and to point them to Christ. A few weeks ago when I spoke, I gave you the image of a shadow, that the feasts are a shadow of a person standing that casts them. And when we see the shadow, we say, oh, someone or something must be there because there's a shadow being cast. And the feasts are the, the shadow that point us to Jesus. And so each week we've been looking at how these feasts uh, apply to him and to us today. And uh, the final festival as we embark on this is uh, the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, Mark, if possible, uh, it's not on the... Sorry, <laughs> just amuse yourselves for a moment. If we could just get the screens up the back so I can follow along, that'd be wonderful. Thank you, that's perfect, well done. All right, so the Feast of Tabernacles was the final one on the Jewish calendar and it celebrated, uh, in, was the most celebrated, was the largest and most popular and there's quite a bit involved. So we're gonna jump straight into the scripture this morning, which is Leviticus 23, starting at verse 33. Leviticus 23, 33. The Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, on the 15th day of the seventh month, the Lord's festival of tabernacles begins and it lasts for seven days. Beginning with the 15th day of the seventh month, after you have gathered the crops of the land, celebrate the festival to the Lord for seven days. The first day is a day of Sabbath rest. The eighth day is also a day of Sabbath rest. On the first day, you are to take branches from luxuriant trees, from palms, willows, and other leafy trees, and rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. Celebrate this festival to the Lord for seven days each year. This is to be a lasting ordinance for generations to come. Celebrate it in the seventh month. Live in temporary shelters For seven days, all native-born Israelites are to live in such shelters, also tabernacles, so your descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in temporary shelters when I brought them out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So as we unpack this feast, what we'll find is that there's three specific Uh, aspects to this feast that the Jews, the Israelites were to celebrate. And the first that we saw in our passage is that it's a time to celebrate, to thank God for the harvest they'd received that year. So it was timed in their calendar so that they'd taken in their crops, the fruit of the land, and they were now able to rest for a time before the next uh, uh, harvest would need to be sown into. Israel, of course, was an agricultural society, so they lived of what the land produced. When it was good, their lives were easy and comfortable. When it wasn't, it was difficult. And so the Lord wanted them each year, regardless of the harvest, to come together at their time of rest and celebrate him, to thank him for what they had taken in and to praise. And so the Israelites from all over the nation would congregate into Jerusalem, the city, 
And they would spend these seven days in a week-long party. They'd dance and sing praise. They would wave palms in the air. They would play games and eat. And they would have circus-type performers, jugglers. And it was this one big joyful celebration to God. The rabbis at the time wrote that anybody who hadn't been to Jerusalem during this feast didn't really know what rejoicing meant. And it's interesting to me because in the passage we just read, God has to tell his people to rejoice. You know, the Philippians 4.4 also says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. There's something about us as human beings that we have to be told to rejoice, to be joyful, that that's actually what God wants for each and every one of our lives. Because we naturally, I think, more easily find uh, it's hard to not be consumed by what we see with our eyes. The struggles, the problems of the world, the trials we go through, they're what we tend to fix our attention on. And as we see those things, we start to you know, live in this victimhood. But God's design is better. He wants us to rejoice, to be a joyful people. And he tells us to in this passage, and as I read from the Apostle Paul. And uh, I think this is particularly important for our current time in life because the reality is when we do look out in the world that things like depression and anxiety and despair are rife. And I genuinely believe that one of the ways God is going to move amongst his people in this generation and the ones to come is with joy, not just because that's what he wants for us, but because it will be contagious. It will be a powerful witness to the world around us to see people of God of faith who trust in Jesus Christ to go about their days and their weeks and their lives joyfully, not because things are easy or comfortable, and for most of us we know that's not the case, but because there's a living God within us that gives us reason to see beyond what's in front of our faces. We have an eternal destiny. We have a release of spiritual blessing that has come into our lives because of the grace of God in Christ. And we, every day of our lives, have the grace when others see the way you live and speak. Is it joyful? And you know, a lot of the time I have to say, no, Lord, please forgive me. Please help me embrace you, because I don't know if you know this about God, but he is joy. You know, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, etc. The kingdom of God, Romans 14 says, is not a matter of eat, eating or drinking, but it's a matter of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. We have access to the most joyful being in all the universe, if we will accept him and go deeper and embrace him. And so ask yourselves today, am I a joyful person? Do I walk in the joy of the Lord? And seek him for that if it's not your reality as I am. The second aspect of the feast was it was a time to remember. God wanted his people to remember that they'd spent this time 40 years in the desert after he delivered them, saved them from slavery in Egypt they went on this journey, this wilderness walk for 40 years until they reached the promised land. And it was really a journey that only should have taken them two or three weeks most. 
But because of their unbelief and fear and disobedience, they aimlessly walked around. And during that time in the desert, they lived in temporary shelters or tabernacles, which is the old-timey sort of English word. That's uh, where this feast gets its name from. Tabernacles is the kind of tents that they lived in. And the pictures up there are the tabernacles that they still build today. And it represents the kind of thing that the Israelites lived in in their wandering. But God gave them this feast because he wanted them to remember As you're going into the promised land, don't forget how much you depend upon me. Just because you're going to live in houses now, be stable and secure in your own land of rest, just because you'll have rich land that will provide a harvest, don't forget that there was a time where you didn't have that, where you were wandering in the wilderness because of your own unbelief, but that even in that time, my presence still dwelt with you in a tabernacle too. I was right there in your midst in those years, dwelling not only with you, but providing your every need, manna from heaven, water from the rocks, protection from enemies, and eventually guidance into the promised land. So it was a time of remembrance. And what they would actually do each year at the feast is build these temporary shelters out of uh, the branches they found, and the pilgrims would do it outside the wall on the ground. The residents of Jerusalem would build them on top of their roofs, and they would physically embody and reenact the remembrance of this is the way we used to be. Even though we're in this land, we depend upon you, Lord. The third aspect of this feast feast was that I think is beautiful is that it was a projection forward. It was a looking forward where they... They knew that their physical needs were met by God, but they also longed for their spiritual need to be met. A time when the spiritual resting place, so to speak, would come. (coughs) Sorry, it's one of those days. Spiritual rest would come and God's presence would abide in and with them forever. And so they built, as they built these temporary shelters that we just saw, they would leave gaps in the, in the ceiling and they'd lie at night and look at the stars and it would remind them that their earthly lives were also just a pilgrimage themselves, that they were making their way, passing through to a time when they would rest spiritually with God. And every year at the ceremonies they hosted at the Feast of Tabernacles, they would read out Zechariah 14. And when you have a chance, I suggest you go and have a look and just see how it connects with the New Testament. But in that chapter, it spoke of three key things. The first is that there would be a time where God's light would come and banish the darkness forever. There'd be a time where the living water of God, which they all understood to be the Holy Spirit, would flow abundantly from Jerusalem. And there would also be a time when the Lord himself would come and be king over the nations. And it's just such a wonderful projection because this is where Jesus comes in for you and for me. Because in John chapter seven and eight, Jesus in his own way proclaims himself to be the tabernacle they're looking for, the resting place, the source of blessing that they sought Uh, where God would live within human flesh, did live in human flesh in him. And he brings this out for the people uh, in chapter 7 and 8 by pointing to two ceremonies that they celebrated at the time each year. 
The first ceremony was called the uh, ritual of pouring out the water. And what would happen is a procession of priests would make their way from the temple with these big uh, golden pitchers of, uh, well, empty golden pitchers, and they'd go down to the pool of Siloam at the end of Jerusalem, fill the waters up, fill water up into the pitchers, and then march them down to the temple, and they'd start to pour out the water all over the altar, and there'd be a basin around to catch it, and they'd do this seven times, so the altar was completely drenched, and they'd sing, and they'd praise, and they'd declare uh, thanksgiving to the Lord as they did it, and they'd read these words from Isaiah 12, therefore with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation." And they would, it was both a, an offering of praise, asking the Lord to meet their physical need of rain for the next harvest season, but it also had spiritual significance because they were thirsting for the coming of the Holy Spirit, the re- spiritual refreshing. And so at this ceremony, they'd recite the words of Isaiah 44, I will pour water on him who is thirsty. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. And it's in this context, as this ceremony is happening, that Jesus gets up, uh, John chapter 7, 37 says, on the last and greatest days, this ceremony is happening, and he cries out in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, Rivers of living water will flow from within them. In other words, he's telling them that the time has finally arrived. Each year you've been celebrating this feast in God and looking forward to a time when the Holy Spirit would be poured out and it's now arrived. I am the source of the living water. And at Pentecost, we heard a couple of weeks ago, that's exactly what happened. Jesus went to the Father And the Father sent the Holy Spirit upon his disciples and to all who came to believe. And Jesus fulfills this Feast of Tabernacles in our lives today when we come to him and believe. Jesus came as this king who would be the very presence of God with us in this earth. The second ceremony that they did every year at Tabernacles was a lighting ceremony where they would have these gigantic uh, lampstands that you had to, the priests had to climb up ladders to reach the top. And at the top were four bowls and the bowls would be filled by the priests with oil and then with a wick that they made out of their undergarments. I'm not sure why that was, but as they were doing that and lighting the, the, um, the wicks, there'd be people around them, surrounding them, crying out with praise, choirs singing and the people dancing. And they'd get those lights and light their torches and march around the city. And it was done at night. And for the time of uh, the ancient times, it would actually, because of the limestone of Jerusalem, it would light up the whole city. You know, they didn't have public lighting as we do. But for Israel, for Jerusalem, this ceremony in the darkness came forth light that spread all around them. And in this context, as this ceremony is happening... I just love this. Jesus again declares in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. 
talk about a sermon illustration as this is going on. He's saying, you're pointing at me. I am this one. And when Jesus does come into our lives, he does banish the darkness from our lives forever. Colossians 2, 9 to 10 says, In Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought into this fullness. So what Jesus has done is taken the presence of God as being limited and confined to a sacred place in a tent first, where only the priests could uh, walk in or Moses initially could enter, and then into a temple where only the priests could go once a year. And through Jesus, God has come into human flesh in all of us, not just a special person, not just someone who deserves it or has been specially appointed, but anyone who receives Jesus, the very presence of God comes and enjoins itself to us and lives in our hearts because Jesus is his tabernacle. And so now the rest that we can have in our spirits, in our souls, doesn't have to come from, you know, earning our way, doing the right things, doesn't have to come from, uh, you know, trying to attain some spiritual nirvana where we um our way through life, doesn't come from visiting a sacred mountain or even going to church. The presence of God and the rest that he brings into our lives comes through the acceptance of Jesus Christ as Lord. John 14, I think it is, says that he and the Father come and make their home in us. And so as we enter into that personal relationship, the spiritual blessing that God always wanted for his people begins to flow. And there's something important in this to grasp because, you know, we don't just uh, receive, Jesus doesn't just give us salvation. He is salvation. His person is salvation. He doesn't just give us joy. He is joy. He doesn't just give us peace. He is peace. He doesn't just give us rest. He is our rest. He's all we need. And it's when we capture that, when we embrace that, that we start to understand that his presence can never, ever be taken away from us. Nothing can keep you from the love of God, can separate you from him, because Jesus is where it all meets humanity. And he is in you if you've accepted him as Lord. And so as we draw to a close, I just wanted to try and consider how we can more embrace the reality of God's presence in our lives. And unfortunately, I don't have anything uh, too profound or complicated because it's actually very simple. And the truth is that it's by faith that the presence of God becomes more of an increasing reality to us, an awareness to us, because sometimes we will feel it strongly, other times not so much, you know, but it's like we walk into a room and sometimes, you know, someone is in that room with us and they speak to us. And so we have a heightened sense of their presence in that room with us. Sometimes they come and touch us and we're more sensitive to the fact that they're in that room with us. Other times they're just there and they're silent and they're sitting and there's no, but they're there and that's the point. And that's who God is in our lives. I was thinking this morning um, about the prodigal son story 
And in the prodigal son story, there's this wonderful uh, dichotomy where the, uh, the prodigal son returns and the father rushes out to meet him and there's an embrace. There's a sense of immediate presence that the prodigal son receives and is filled, no doubt, with joy as his father says, welcome home and let's celebrate your back. But there's also another person in the story, isn't there? The, the older brother. And the older brother is still always in the presence of his father, but he's become oblivious to it in a sense because he no longer has that sense of joy or awareness that even though he's never left the father's house, he still has the blessing that gets poured out from that reality. And the father has to say to him, why are you disturbed? Everything I have is yours. You are in my house. You are with me. I'm present with you. What's the problem? And very often our walk is, it can be like that. We have the moments of the prodigal son where we bang, we're in his embrace and we know it that we know it that we know it. And then there's other times where we drift and we come a bit like the older brother and we become dry and distant in our attitude towards the Lord. So there's two things that I just wanted to, that felt led to warn us against, I suppose, uh, in the way we relate to Jesus and seek to be in his presence day by day. And the first is treating him a bit like an ATM in a commercial way where we only ever come to him for what we need or what we want. You know, it might be shame that brings us to him because we want forgiveness for sin. It might be that we're going through a crisis and we need his help or we're facing some decisions in our lives that we don't know which way to go and we seek, Lord, give me wisdom. Might be worried about a loved one or someone else that we respect. It might be asking him for a job or financial blessing. Now, none of those are wrong in themselves and is part of the relationship. But there's something that we miss when we only ever come to Jesus for what we want from him. There's a deeper, more lasting intimacy with him in his presence when we seek the blesser, not the blessing, if that makes sense. And so the example that I um, give this morning, it comes from my own marriage and it's a bit of a a confession that uh, I've talked through with my wife, but uh, Sarah and I got married young. I think she was 20, I was 21. We both lived only with our parents and we were about to say I do and to live uh, in the presence of each other. We were committing to being present with each other for the rest of our lives. And I must confess that in my inexperience and immaturity and uh, selfishness, if I can say it that way, the first year and a half of my marriage I found incredibly difficult and I would constantly complain to the Lord. I didn't know how to communicate properly with Sarah at the time, so it was all an internal thing. But my problem was that I could only ever see the ways that Sarah didn't measure up to what I wanted or thought that a wife should be. And this is going to make me sound terrible, but it was stupid things like she didn't cook enough for me. She didn't do my washing enough for me. She was always sick at the time, not to her own fault, but in her sickness, there wasn't much joy in our home, if you know what I mean. And, And so I was only ever fixating on what I wanted and needed from her, but didn't get. 
And this went on, honestly, for about a year and a half until I was one day complaining to the Lord, pouring out my heart to him. And he very gently and quietly said, and I love this about the Lord because his Holy Spirit is always gentle first, always corrective, but gentle when he goes about it. And he said, nothing of my complaint. He just said, Michael, what have I called you to do in this marriage? And almost before I could answer in any particular way, he said, I've called you to love her, to serve her. Nothing else about that, nothing else outside of that should be of your concern. Leave Sarah to me. She's responsible for how she loves you. You are only responsible for how I love you. And from that moment, it just shifted my whole attitude to my marriage. Suddenly, it was a joy to be with her. It was an honor to be in her presence. It was, I was thankful for being married. It completely transformed the way I wanted to be with her now and to never doubt or fear the decision I've made. And Jesus calls us to the same thing, not to just come to him. He wants us to want him, the person of Jesus, not just what he can do for us and will do for us, but who he is, the living God in us and through us. The second challenge, uh, I think, to uh, our faith and our sense of his presence is unbelief itself. And I say that because Hebrews chapter 3 says it. He said, unbelief turns us to it turns us away from the living God and it keeps us from entering his rest. And I think what it's pointing to is that when we become more aware of our circumstances than the truth in God, when we become uh, absorbed in our, in our struggles and our temptations and our trials, uh, we start to imagine that Maybe God's not really there. You know, the most powerful question, I think, in all of Scripture is in the Garden of Eden when the, when the devil comes to Eve and says, did God really say? And the great uh, trial in our hearts day to day is, is God really there? There'll be many times in many different ways that you'll be tempted to doubt that the Lord is with you and in you and through you but the word is eternally true. And no matter what we endure, he is with us. And so uh, Hebrews 3 goes on to give us some antidotes to this attack on our belief, to warding us away from unbelief. And verse one says, fix your thoughts on Jesus. And that word fix in the Greek is uh, kataneo, and it <laughs> would have butchered that pronunciation, but it means to take note of, to perceive, to concentrate, fix your thoughts, your mind on something or someone. And it's a bit like the Jews at the Feast of Tabernacles, each year what they were doing was fixing their minds in a physical, tangible way. They were bringing their minds, their hearts back to the remembrance of who God is in and through them and for them. And we need to do the same, not as an idolatry thing, but just to be completely immersing ourselves in the truth. You know, it's like the song that we sing from time to time, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. We need to 
You know, we've become so, since Luther came in the Reformation, we've become so opposed to working in any way for salvation, and we definitely do not. Please don't misunderstand me. But we've also taken that almost too far to the extreme in, in excusing ourselves from being part of the relationship with Jesus. We say, oh, well, Jesus, you do everything. And a bit like my analogy with Sarah, we take from him, but we don't give back. Genuine covenant relationship requires that we hold hands like that picture suggests and we walk with him and fixing our thoughts on him is really just one way of doing that. And so someone suggested to me recently one way that I've taken up to do this and I give it to you as just what might be a helpful suggestion and it's saying throughout the days just six simple words. Thank you for your presence, Lord. Thank you for your presence, Lord. And what I've found is I've started to do that uh, particularly, I don't find preaching easy, and particularly the weeks leading up to it, I go through a baptism of fire every time in, in maybe the worst sense, but as I've this week said, thank you for your presence, Lord. There's something that as you stop and pause and say those words and say them again and again and again until it starts to sink in, into your heart. Actually, I'm thanking you, Lord, because your presence is in me, is with me. And as you embrace and meditate on that truth, rest returns because he is all we need. When I was talking to Sarah about the week, she said that one of the things she's done over her life is to sing the song, Jesus loves me, this I know. You know, it's just that beautiful reminder that even though I go through this stuff in life, Actually, there's Jesus over here, and he loves me, and he's with me. You know, you will have heard uh, the sermon analogy of a lady who was really struggling in her prayer, prayer life, in her quiet times. So one thing she did at the suggestion of her pastor, I think it was at the time, was to make two cups of tea and to sit down at the dining table and to put one cup of tea at one end and she with hers at the other end and just imagining that Jesus is there with her and talking and sharing. And it wasn't to be idolatrous in saying, oh, Jesus' physical presence is with me and uh, be weird, but it was just to remind herself for her own sake to remember the truth. You know, reminding ourselves in the Feast of Tabernacles each year, the Jews would do something physical, tangible to remind themselves of the truth in God. And that's what we have to start to do ourselves to fix our thoughts on Jesus, as Hebrew 1, Hebrews 1 tells us. The other thing it says to do is encourage one another daily. And you know, the challenge of that is that it means that we need to have brothers and sisters in Christ in our lives regularly. There's a, a quote from Oswald Chambers that says, beware of isolation. Beware of doing the journey with Christ alone. You know, embrace relationship with brothers and sisters in Christ because as you share the honesty and, and vulnerability of your hearts, something beautiful happens. And I don't share this story often because it's a bit personal, but I'm being reminded of it now. And it's about six or seven years ago, I went through an, an excruciatingly difficult time in my life where 
Uh, and for those of you who can accept this, it, I always understood it as spiritual attack. But what happened was I went through a time where a, a lie entered into my head. I'll try and explain it as best I can. A lie was, was sewn into my head that I could not, despite my best efforts, get out. And this lie was basically along the lines of, you're going to get hurt. You're going to get undone. Uh, you are going to end up in trouble. And rationally, I knew that it was a lie and I tried to get myself out of that lie, but it became so crippling that I couldn't sleep well at all. I couldn't experience joy. Sarah will remember it well. I was not a happy person because it absorbed my thinking. And for three months this went on and I, I tried everything in my own strength. But two things brought me out of it that I know for sure happened. One was that I had two particular Christian brothers who I met with weekly. And they, as I would share with them what was going on in my head and I verbalized it, they would then speak back to me what was true. Michael, that's not true. God is with you and for you and no one can come against you because of him. That's a lie. And as they would repeat that back to me from the outside, it would wash me. The other thing was scripture. I would find scriptures that I would repeat over myself constantly. And eventually this three-month period just broke. But we all go through struggles where unbelief knocks on our door. And it's trying to keep us away from the truth in God. And unless we come into relationship with one another, share our lives with one another, it, it's too, uh, maybe, I, I mean, God is strong enough to get us through on our own, but I, I've come to appreciate more and more that this faith journey is just too hard on our own. You can't do it on your own. You can't even, I don't think, do it in just you and your marriage because there's things that we can't see ourselves. There's blind spots we all have. And we need others to help us with that. And so here at Kubi, I hope and I pray that we start to really open ourselves to relating to one another, getting to know people here, investing in relationship, inviting people out for meals, for coffee catch-ups, uh, come and stay and talk to one another after, build relationship so that you don't have to do it alone and they don't have to do it alone. Even if you think you're strong, others aren't. Invest in them. Do it for their sake, if not your own. But take the, it is a risk, isn't it? it you no, know, there's the risk of uh, your trust being broken or there's the risk of you feeling rejected or there's all those reasons why not to, but we can't focus on them. We have to focus on all the reasons of why we should and why it's going to be if we can hold the space for long enough, why we will walk in new ways of freedom and love and grace in this church. And so let me encourage you to, to do that journey with us uh, more and more. As I close, I uh, just want to say, we just, uh, however you can connect with God and become aware of, your, of his presence more, try and ask him for ways that you can do that. You know, he will reveal what works for you. I've mentioned a couple of things, but everyone has a different way of uh, understanding, receiving, embracing one another in presence. Uh, I like kicking the footy with my sons. They don't like it. So everyone's got their own different ways of embracing presence with one another. 
but if you don't have one yourself, then just start to ask the Lord and he will give you something. But just take the opportunities in your days to slow down and turn your thoughts, fix your thoughts on Jesus' presence in your life. Close with the story of an archaeologist who once hired some Inca tribesmen to lead him to an archaeological site deep in the mountains. And after they'd been moving for some time, the tribesmen stopped and insisted they would go no further. The archaeologist grew impatient and in his impatience grew angry, but no matter how much he conjoled the tribesmen, they wouldn't go any further. Quite some time passed and eventually they got up from their seats and picked up their gear and set off once more. The archaeologist was understandably bewildered, so he caught up to them and asked why they stopped and refused to move on, and they said this, we had been moving too fast and had to wait for our souls to catch up. And the point, I think, is that often you and I are moving too fast. Life is moving too fast. We live in a busy, constant communicating world where our attention is torn in a million different directions. We need to give ourselves time for our souls to catch up with Jesus. And so let me, if you take nothing else away from this morning, please, 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 you will walk out these doors and there'll be a million things that come against you doing this again. Try to hold on to, I need to slow down. I need to catch up with Jesus and hopefully you will want it too. Close with these words from Matthew 11, 28 and 29 in the message. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me, get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Let's pray and ask him for that right now. We hope you enjoyed this podcast brought to you from Mount Pleasant Baptist Church. Our prayer is that what was said today inspires you and strengthens you in your faith. If you would like to talk to someone about what you've heard today, you can contact the team during office hours on the number you can find on our website at mounties.org.au. Thanks for joining us. We look forward to having your company again soon. God bless.